All right, here we go. You guys ready? Let's dig into the word, man. Let's dig into the word. John chapter 4. We're going to be in John chapter 4 today. We're going to look at verses 1 to 42. You know, a few months ago, no, actually, actually more like two years ago, uh, I started to kind of, started to realize I started losing my eyesight and I had to get readers and uh, I put all my message notes, I know I, I, I know I, I look like a professor now, but um, <laughs> I, I don't really like wearing these things, but I, I got to read them if I'm going to read out my Bible. So here we go. John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph, Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and Who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water, water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. 
So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. The story in John 4 is very well known. It really is a story of, of failure and, and pain. It's a story of racism. It's a story of brokenness. It's a story of grace and second chances. You know, what I, I've learned long, a long time ago that God will never love you more than he does today. He'll never love you less than he does at this very moment. God's love for you as a broken sinner in need of God's grace, when you come to him, his love for you is unchanging, unwavering, and unconditional. John chapter 4, the first six verses really kind of give us the, the beginning of the story. Here's point number one, grace pursues. Grace pursues. Jesus was traveling to Galilee from Judea. So from point A to point Z, the, the best route was to go through Samaria. So Judea is in the south, and then Samaria is smack dab in the middle, and then Galilee is at the top. Think of it as a, a triple-deck ice cream cone, right? Judea, Samaria, Galilee. The normal route for the Jews, if they were in Judea to get to Galilee, they would normally cross over the Jordan River into Perea, they would go into the Decapolis, and then they would cross back over the Jordan River into Galilee. They did that. They took that route so that they avoided the area of Samaria. But the story tells us that Jesus didn't take the detour. He went right into the gut of Samaria. He took a 60-mile journey on foot. What's the significance? There was a bitter feud between the Samaritans and the Jews. In, in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was divided into two kingdoms. You had the northern kingdom in, in Israel, and then you had the southern kingdom, which was uh, Ju Judah in, in the south. And history tells us that the, the Assyrians came into the northern region, Israel, the northern kingdom, and they, they invaded the land. They, they plundered, uh, and they took people captive, and they left some people into the land. And then years later, the Assyrians come back into the land and they intermarry with the Jewish people who were left originally in the land. They were known as the remnant of Israel. And this is why even today, especially in Jesus' day, the Samaritans were called half-breeds. They were called a mixed race. The, the Samaritans, in the eyes of the Jews, they were seen as 
impure, unclean. Jesus, being a Jew, went through Samaria for one primary reason. He had a work to do. He had an appointment with someone that was waiting for him, someone that really needed a touch of his grace. There was a Samaritan woman who was in great need of Jesus, and Jesus wanted to meet that need in her life. I love what Max Lucado says about God's grace. He says, God's grace has a a drenching about it, a wildness about it, a a white water riptide, turn you upside downness about it. Grace comes after you. It rewires you. From insecure to God secure, from regret riddled to better because of it, from afraid to die to ready to fly, grace is the voice that calls us to change and then gives us the power to pull it off. I love what Max Lucado says, grace comes after you. I've always said that you don't get grace, grace gets you. The grace of God gets you. Grace is the hound of heaven. It, it pursues you into this relationship with Christ. Everything we have in life, everything, is because of the grace of God. Obviously, our salvation is unearned, undeserved, right, unmerited. But everything you have in life is, is, is from God's hand. I want you to jot this down. Our merits merit nothing. God's work merits everything. See, a lot of people are confused when it comes to, you know, religion and stuff. They think, well, if I'm a good person, I'll, then I'll go to heaven when I die. No, your merits, your good works, your Your righteousness merit nothing. God's work, which is Christ on the cross, merits everything. His accomplishments, his achievements merit everything for you. This is why we were saved by the grace of God. Does anybody remember the story back in November of um, the uh, the tunnel miners who got stuck uh, back in November of last year? Uh, There was a small remote town in India. There were 41 construction workers trapped in a tunnel. Anybody remember that story? For 17 days, extraordinary efforts were made to deliver food, water, light, oxygen, and medicine through a pipe to those trapped underground. With the help of of an Australian tunneling expert, they, they were able to burrow through hundreds of thousands, if not millions of tons of mountain with the risk of the whole thing collapsing. The Australian expert said one wrong move meant death for everyone. 41 men and all the tunnel rescuers would die immediately. After failed attempts with heavy machinery, they turned to a much more basic method, human hands. They knew they were just a few more yards of debris left to bore through between them and the trapped men. But they realized that the huge machine boring a hole to insert a a wide pipe horizontally through the debris pipe through which it was hoped that men would crawl out broke and it had been removed. Rescuers tried various strategies to access the section of tunnel where the men were trapped, boring both horizontally and vertically toward them, but all attempts failed. Luckily, they were able to force a slightly wider pipe in through the rubble, which meant hot meals and a medical endoscopic camera could be sent through, offering the world a first look at the trapped men inside. The rescuers had decided to try two new strategies in tandem. One will be, or one was an attempt 
to drill vertically into the tunnel from the top of the hill under which the tunnel was being constructed. The second effort was um, horizontal drilling through the mountain of debris, but manually this time, not using the heavy machinery that has failed thus far. There was a team of six that went inside and roughly two they went inside roughly two and a half foot pipe already thrust into the debris pile to remove the remaining rock and soil manually with hand tools. A technique known as rat hole mining, which is still common in coal mining in India. The amazing thing is they shifted from machine, like heavy machinery, to rat mining, manual drilling with their own hands, and their tireless efforts were successful. The men, 41 men, 17 days, were finally rescued. They were brought up. They were greeted with garlands of marigold flowers outside the tunnel. Firecrackers went off and people cheered. Some of their family members had been there on site day and night waiting for their loved ones to be rescued. It's an amazing story about how these men were trapped. They they were doomed Really, there was no hope, right? One mistake, they would be dead. It reminds me spiritually, this is where we're at. We're in a spiritual condition called sin. Spiritually speaking, we're trapped, and we're in desperate need of God to to peel back the rubble, to work his way through the rubble, to get to us. We need the God of this universe, And we need his son, Jesus, who penetrated the darkness of a world to rescue us. Jesus came on a rescue mission so that we would be rescued from our sins, so that we would be reconciled back to God. God's grace pursues us. You see it in the story. Jesus pursues her. He doesn't take the detour. He goes right through Samaria. Look at verses 7 and 9. A woman from Samaria came to, to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Point number two, if you're taking notes, grace breaks down all racial barriers. When she comes to Jacob's well at noontime, which was the hottest time of the day, the other women, they would go out and draw water right early in the morning. Why did she come alone? Why did she come at noon? Why did she come at the hottest part of the day? Maybe, probably, she did that because she was the town outcast. She was the woman of ill repute. I mean, we know the story. She had five failed marriages. She had been marked, labeled, judged, criticized, marginalized, kicked to the curb. She had an empty water bucket, which I think symbolizes her empty life. She was unhappy. She was miserable. She had one failed marriage after another, to be exact, five. She was an immoral woman. It says the disciples went away into the city to buy food. That was not an accident. Jesus wanted to spend some one-on-one time with her. Because Jesus knew her life story. He was aware of her broken marriages. He knew she needed a second chance. And Jesus asked her for a drink. Notice her reaction. 
How is it that you, a Jew, I just wonder how she said that. You're a Jew, right? Ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria. It is dripping with racial animosity and prejudice. You know, when it comes to the gospel, I mean, he, let's go back to the story real quick. Jesus doesn't take a detour, so he pursues the lost. And then not only does he pursue her in his grace, but he's breaking down all, all racial barriers. He's going to a Samaritan woman. You have to understand, women during this time, they had no rights. They were considered lower than cattle. They couldn't vote. They couldn't do nothing. They were like property. But what's amazing in the Gospels, when it comes to Jesus, he elevates women. He elevates their status. He gives them dignity. A lot of people, oh, Christianity, you know, it's, just, it's male chauvinist. And, you know. No, actually, no. It's actually the opposite. Jesus highlights a band of women that funded his ministry. They were constantly following him. Who did Jesus make out to be the first witnesses to the empty tomb? Women. The men were little scared little boys locked behind a locked door. The women were the first witnesses to the tomb. The gospel, Jesus is breaking down racial barriers. He's modeling what it's like to know him and to be a part of his kingdom. The gospel breaks down all racial barriers. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. Paul's writing to the church of Galatia, one of the churches he, he, um, he planted. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female. For you are all one in Christ. You're one. If you know Christ and your brother or your sister, if they know Christ, we are one in Christ. The media and the culture wants to pit people against each other. That's not what the gospel does. The gospel brings us together. If you have issues with someone of another race, you have issues with Jesus. Straight up. I mean, the apostle John, he said it very clearly. He said, how can you say you love God whom you've never seen and hate your brother whom you have seen? John's saying, that's hypocritical. That don't make no sense. There's a Greek word for that, baloney. <laughs> the gospel breaks down all racial barriers. We should be seeking friendships, relationships with people that are different than us. This is what I love about our church. Look around. This is a picture of heaven, right? Heaven is like Skittles. Lots of colors, lots of flavors. This is what the local church is all about. And by the way, if you like Skittles, the best flavor is purple, grape. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. All you red haters. I know a bunch of you like red. Whatever. All right. All right, let's pick up the story. Verses 10 to 15. Jesus, we're doing a lot of Bible reading. Are you guys okay with that? Okay, good. I figured. I wanted to, sh I, I normally don't take that much time reading the entire passage, but I felt like it would be good to like get it out there and then walk through it. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? 
He gave us the well and drank from himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to to draw water. Here's point number three, grace satisfies. Grace satisfies. You know what I love about Jesus? He's the master communicator. he's, He's the master storyteller. No one is like Jesus. No one teaches like Jesus. No one has performed miracles except Jesus. Jesus is the man. And what he does is he takes this conversation to a whole nother level. Here's what he does. He's a, he's a master at taking common themes and using those common things to drive home a spiritual point. He moves from the physical to the spiritual. He says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Speaking of the well. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. He uses water as a, as a metaphor for spiritual life. He's speaking of living water that can satisfy eternal thirst. Jesus is offering her salvation. He calls it two things. Salvation just simply means to be delivered from our sins, right? We experience this salvation, this deliverance from our sins. He calls it two things. He calls it, number one, a gift from God. Number two, he calls it living water. Salvation is a gift from God. I mentioned earlier, you can't buy it, you can't earn it, you can't achieve that. You can only receive it. It's a gift. I like what Adrian Rogers, Adrian Rogers said, it's not a matter of race, but a matter of grace. Amen? Isn't that good? It's not a matter of race. Jesus is showing us it's not a matter of race. It don't matter if you live in China or Iraq or Australia or Canada. It's not a matter of race. It's a matter of grace. Jesus came to extend grace to us. There's so many beautiful pictures in the Bible of salvation. And then he says, not only is it a gift, but it's living water. Salvation is like taking a drink of water. This is how simple it is to to be saved. Come to Jesus. You know, a lot of people, they're, they're, they're troubled, they're depressed, they're searching for meaning, they're searching for significance, they're searching for, for, for security, they're searching for identity, and they're grasping, and they're, and they're searching, and in their search, they come up empty every time. Because listen, you know, status, fame, money, pleasure, sex, the weekend, your job, popularity, clicks on social media, you name it, put it in the blank, it will never satisfy. It will never satisfy. This is why people who have achieved like great heights of success, I mean, they have like, they have gathered mounds of, of, of assets, investments, money, real estate, and so many people like that, very successful. You see celebrities, sport athletes, they just lose it because they realize, is this really all there is? I remember there was an interview with Tom Brady years ago after he won. I want to say, say after like his sixth Super Bowl ring, something like that, maybe his fourth. And he was very candid. He was very honest. Like, is this all there is? 
Like, is, is this it? He was very honest in the interview. And it just, it, it struck me, kind of, but kind of not. Listen, people, they're grasping. Only Jesus can ultimately satisfy the longing in your heart. Look at verses 16 to 18. Jesus said to her, so he, now he's getting ready. Now he's, now rubber meets the road. He's going to get down to the nitty gritty right here. He says to her, go call your husband and come here. He knows what he's doing because he knows everything. The woman said to him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Here's point four. Grace forgives the past. Grace forgives the past. You know, Jesus, in this encounter with the Samaritan woman, he exposes her lifestyle. He exposes it. He exposes her failed marriages. What does he do? In the story, what does Jesus do? Does he sit in judgment on her? Does he just rail on her? I mean, does he, does he go toe-to-toe with her, eye-to-eye, face-to-face? Does he get close to her? Is he just mean-spirited? Is he, is he harsh with his words? Does he look at her and say, you're a Samaritan? You're a dirty, unclean, mixed-breed Samaritan. You need to get your life right. You've had five failed marriages. You can't even keep a marriage together. What's your problem? You're an immoral, unclean woman. You are beyond the reach of God's grace in your life. Does he say that? He doesn't. He doesn't sit in judgment on her. Does he walk away from her? No, I think he gets closer to her. He gets closer to her in this conversation. See, sometimes we, th- we feel like we're so polluted. We're so stained by sin. We've, we've made a mess of our lives. There's no way that God could forgive me. There's no way that God could come into my life. And, and Jesus steps in and he gets closer to you. And he draws you in by his grace. He wants to do a work in your life. He's not repelled by your sin. He died for your sin. He doesn't walk away from her. He doesn't do any of that. You know what he does? He displays gentleness. He displays kindness. He he displays patience. He extends forgiveness. You know what he's doing? He's displaying the fruit of the Spirit, which is something all believers, we could all learn from Jesus right here. Sometimes we get very quick to judge, quick to label, quick to be like, there's no way that person's gonna come to Jesus. But we need to model the fruit of the Spirit like Jesus did. You know what he does? He gives her a grace encounter. He gives her a second chance. He gives her a mulligan. He gives her a redo. He gives her a a get out of jail card, monopoly. He gives her a new beginning. He wants her to know that he knows everything about her. He wants to turn the page to a new chapter in her life. He wants her to know that he has the ability and power to forgive her. Came across a story years ago. Barbara, Max Lucado tells a story. Barbara Leininger and her sister Regina were daughters of German immigrants who had settled in Colonel, Pennsylvania. And the two girls were 11 and 9 years old when they were kidnapped. 
On a fall day in 1755, the sisters were in the farm cabin with their brother and father when two Indian warriors burst open the door. Many of the natives in the area were friendly, but this pair was not. Barbara and Regina huddled together as their father stepped forward. His wife and second son had gone to the mill for the day. They were safe, but his two daughters were not. He offered the Indians food and tobacco. He told the girls to fetch a bucket of water, that the men must be thirsty. As the girls scurried out the door, he spoke to them in German and told them not to come back until the Indians were gone. They raced toward the nearby creek. As they were drawing water from the creek, a gunshot rang out. They hid in the grass and watched as the cabin went up in flames. Their father and brother never came out, but the two warriors did. They found the girls hiding in the grass and dragged them away. Other braves and captives soon appeared. Barbara realized that she and Regina were just two of many children who had survived a massacre. Days became weeks as the Indians marched the captives westward. Barbara did her best to stay close to Regina and keep up her spirits. She reminded Regina of the song their mother had taught them. Alone, yet not alone am I. Though in this solitude so drear, I feel my Savior always nigh. He comes the weary hours to cheer. I am with him and he with me. I therefore cannot lonely be. The girls sang to each other as they fell asleep at night. As long as they were together, they believed they could survive. At a certain point, however, the Indians dispersed, separating the sisters, Barbara attempting to hold on to Regina and released her hand only at threat of death. The two girls were marched in opposite directions. Barbara's journey continued several weeks deeper and deeper into the forest. Finally, an Indian village appeared. It became clear that she and the other children were to forget the ways of their parents. No English was permitted, only Iroquoian. They farmed fields and tanned hides. They wore buckskins and moccasins. She lost all contact with her family and fellow settlers. Three years later, Barbara escaped. She ran through the woods for 11 days, finally reached safety at Fort Pitt. She pleaded with the officers to send a rescue party to look for Regina. They explained to her that such a mission would be impossible and made arrangements for her to be reunited with her mother and brother. No one had news of Regina. Barbara thought daily of her sister, but her hope that no substance. Barbara thought daily of her sister, but her hope had no substance. Until six years later, she had married and had begun raising her own family when she received word that 206 captives had been rescued and taken to Fort Carlisle. Might Regina be one of them? Barbara and her mother set out to find out. The sight of the refugees stunned them, must have spent years isolated in villages, separated from any settlers. They were emancipated and confused. They were so pale, they, they blended in with the snow. Barbara and her mother walked up and down the line, calling Regina's name, searching faces and speaking German. No one looked or spoke back. The mother and daughter turned away with tears in their eyes and told the colonel that Regina wasn't among the rescued. The colonel urged them to be sure. He asked about identifying blemishes such as scars or birthmarks. There were none. He asked about heirlooms, a necklace or bracelet. The mother shook her head. Regina 
had been wearing no jewelry. The colonel had one final idea. Was there a childhood memory or song? The faces of the two women brightened. What about the song they sang each night? Barbara and her mother immediately turned and began to walk slowly up and down the rows. As they walked, they sang, alone, yet not alone am I. For a long time, no one responded. The faces seemed comforted by the song, but none reacted to it. Then all of a sudden, Barbara heard a loud cry. A tall, slender girl rushed out of the crowd toward her mother, embraced her, and began to sing the verse. Regina had not recognized her mother or sister. She had forgotten how to speak English and German, but she remembered the song that had been placed in her heart as a young girl. God places a song in our hearts today. And it's a powerful song. God's voice whispers to us, you're my child, you're forgiven. You've been forgiven much. I've taken all your sins and I've cast it as far as the east is from the west. I've taken all your sin and I've plunged it into the depths of the ocean. If you're in Christ, you're forgiven. The words of a song are powerful, but I'll tell you something more powerful, the power of God's forgiveness upon our life. Verses 25 and 26, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is, who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I find it kind of ironic. I mean, didn't he just tell her all things? I mean, didn't he just tell her about her five failed marriages? And then she's saying, well, you know, when the Messiah comes, you know, he's going to reveal all things. He just revealed it to you. And then Jesus drops this bombshell. He says, I who speak to you am he. I can picture the scene in my head. I can picture Jesus looking at her. And with a few simple words, he lays claim to Messiahship. It's like Jesus looked at her and said, the one you've been waiting for all of these years has finally arrived. The one you're speaking with is the Messiah. And this tells us that grace is revealed. Point five, grace is revealed. Jesus said, I who speak to you am he. The Bible tells us in Titus chapter two, verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Jesus is the grace of God. And who he is and what he's done changes everything. Look at verse 28 to 30. So the woman left her water jar and went into the town and said to the people, come, come. See a man who, who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. So what does she do? She drops her water jar. She runs into town. There's, there's an urgency, right? There's, there's an intentionality, right? She tells the people, friends, family, neighbors, I think I met the Messiah. You know, there's red apples and there's green apples. There's a big difference between a red apple and a green apple. A red apple, red apples are generally, well, they're ripe. The best red apples, in my opinion, are the honey crisp apples. Those are the best, hands down. Delicious, 
a crispy, I mean, just amazing, right? If you, dis- if you disagree, just be quiet, okay? Just be quiet, <laughs> right? The green apples, some, yeah, some green apples are ripe, but some green apples aren't ripe, and that's why they're green. They're sour. You bite into a, an unripened green apple, oh, makes your mouth pucker, right? Some of your mouths are puckering right now as we talk about it. Red is ready, green is not. You know, people in your oikos, they're either a red apple or a green apple. Some people in your oikos, they're ripe for the gospel. The Samaritan woman, she's ripe for the gospel. She's a red apple. I think sometimes we get laser focused on that one single green apple on our oikos list that is not ripe for the gospel. We spend all of our time, all of our energy focused on that one single person when on your list there's a few other red apples dangling. They're ripe. They're ready. And God wants to use you as a tool in the master's hands to share the gospel with them. Jesus knew that this Samaritan woman, she was ripe for the gospel. And I think that's why Jesus took the detour. He knew her heart was ready to hear and ready to receive. In one conversation, I find it so amazing. In one conversation, she goes from being broken and being religious to being an evangelist. This is why John, he sets it up time and time and time again. He keeps telling us, found people, find people. Found people, find people. If you've been found by Jesus, you're going to have a desire to tell someone about him. This is what she's doing. She's been found. She's encountered the Messiah. She's tasted and seen that the Lord is good. She's experienced his grace. It's a gift. It's living water, right? He moved from the physical to the spiritual. If you drink what I'll give you, it will well up within you. This this eternal life, this gift that he offers, God wants us to show the gospel in our lives, but also to share the gospel in our lives. He wants us to do a show and share, kind of like a show and, show and tell. When you're, remember when you were a kid and you, you would show and tell, you bring something to your class and you would show your class, whatever, and you talk about it. This is what he's calling us to do. Shine the light. This is why Jesus said, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. And then the Bible repeatedly tells us, share the good news with those who don't know him. Pick up the story in verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Food satisfies. Jesus is saying, my food, that which is going to satisfy is accomplishing the will of him who sent me, the will of my father, to accomplish, to finish the work. Do you not say there are yet four months? Then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. This is why we talk about everyone in this room has an oikos. We talk about oikos. We talk about sharing our faith with with lost family and friends because the fields are white for harvest. This is why we send teams on short-term mission trips to Colombia and 
Costa Rica and Mexico and Nicaragua because people are hungry for the gospel. You know, Jesus has this conversation with the disciples, and Jesus is telling his disciples, I want you to see what I see. I want you to see what I see. Not just with your eyes. I want you to see this woman, this situation with your heart. He says, lift up your eyes. See that the fields are white for harvest. People are hurting. Just like the Samaritan woman. People are living in rubble. There's brokenness in their life. They desperately need Christ. And and God can use you. God can use you to share the good news with them. People are spiritually hungry and thirsty, and Jesus offers hope to the hurting and forgiveness to those who are broken. Verse 39 to 42, many Samaritans from that town believed him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with him, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word, And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves. I think that's key right there. We have heard for ourselves, right? Like, like, and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. Here's point number six. Grace transforms. Grace transforms. You know, Jesus knew everything about this woman. He knows everything about you. He knows about your failed marriages. He knows about where you're at right now, whether you're walking with him or whether you've drifted away from him. Sometimes people think, oh, I've I've drifted. I've made a mess of my life. What am I going to do? How can I come back to God? It's one prayer of confession. It's one step back to God. And when you turn and you come back to God, guess who's waiting? The father that was waiting for the prodigal son. The prodigal son comes home. What did he do? Throws a robe on him, throws a ring on him. They have barbecue kosher barbecue, but they had a barbecue, right? We're throwing a party. And the oldest son, he's so upset. The point of the story, obviously, is telling us don't be like the elder brother, which were like the Pharisees, upset that people were getting their lives right with God. But the point I'm trying to make is when you come back to God, if you've drifted, come back to him. He's waiting for you with arms open wide. He's waiting for you to come home. The Samaritans... Some of them, they heard her testimony. They believed. Others encountered Christ for themselves. It went beyond her testimony. They experienced it for themselves. It says, for we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. No one can do this for you. No one can make the decision for you to come to Christ to turn from your sin, to turn from your past, to embrace Jesus by faith, to trust that he is the son of God, that he's God wrapped in human flesh, that he penetrated the lostness of our world and he died on a cross, he was buried and three days later he rose again from the grave. No one can make the decision for you to surrender to Christ. You have to surrender to Christ yourself. You have to place faith in Christ. No one can do this for you. The woman encountered the grace of God. And the grace of God can make all things new. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that just simply means if you place your faith in Christ, 
You are in Christ. You're a part of his family, part of his kingdom. You've been forgiven. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I like what Charles Swindoll said. God is the one who builds trophies from the scrap pile, who draws his clay from under the bridge, who makes clean instruments of beauty from the filthy failures of yesteryear. That's what God does. We're scraps. He can turn you into a trophy. We're clay under the bridge. He's the master. He's the potter. He can form you and make you into his image. We have filthy failures of yesteryear that mark our lives. But God promises to come in and and clean us up and make us beautiful instruments for his glory. When you experience the grace of God, you don't just receive forgiveness of sins. You're made new. You're made new. You're a new person in Christ. You're in Christ. Christ is in you. There's a union that takes place. And when Christ comes into your life, you become a brand new person. God gives you this new start, this new beginning, this new life. Here's the question. Are you like the Samaritan woman? Broken, has some racial animosity, prejudice in her heart, failures, sin, past. If you have a past marked by sin and brokenness and failure, I can tell you today, I got good news for you. Jesus can forgive you. His grace can transform your life if you let him. Why don't you come to Christ today? Why don't you give him your failures and your brokenness? Why don't you trust him to be your savior? Listen, his grace just may be pursuing you today. Why don't you yield your life to him today? Why don't you trust him? Just like the Samaritans did. Trust him as the Savior of the world. Let's pray.